Our minds are porous. Every living system is porous. Every cell is surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane. Stuff comes in, stuff goes out. Our bodies are like that. Our organs are like that. Ecosystems are like that. Every living system is porous. It's surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane. Why would our brains be any different? Why would our minds be any different? Hi, Bob. Hi. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm very excited that you're back. I wanted to tell you this, that the episode that we did in 2023 talking about unattached burdens has been the most listened to episode for sure on the whole podcast. And every time I look at the the stats, it's always in the top 10 episodes every single week. Wow. So people love listening to you talk about unattached burdens. <laughs> Good. I love talking <laughs> about them. Is that, is that, I guess, surprising or not surprising? Very much, because most of the time I've been focused on these, which is 10, 12 years now, I've gotten a lot of uh, negativity. You know, the Institute and Dick were saying, Bob, don't talk about this so much in public. We want we only want this introduced at level three. It's too weird. And, you know, a lot of people just sort of go, oh, Bob, he's been living in California too long. <laughs> you know? Those Californians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, you know. So it's really gratifying that people are taking this very, very seriously, as seriously as I do, and really interested in it. And yeah. a lot of great things are happening with the book. A French publisher is going to translate it into French and publish it in France. Wonderful. A Spanish publisher is going to translate it into Spanish and publish it in Spain. Wow. A foundation has started giving me a little support, and they're going to, they're paying to create an audio book, which should be oh out soon. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. And my goal, my big hope, and maybe somebody on your podcast audience can help. I really want the book translated into Portuguese mm -hmm. because I believe Brazil would be the most receptive country on the planet right now to this kind of thinking. I have had nibbles from Japan and Korea too. So that's amazing. Yeah. One of the questions that I had that I wanted to ask you was how has the book been doing? And so you just answered that beautifully <laughs> it's it's going very well and mm -hmm. for those listening who might not be aware the book that we're talking about is called the others within us internal family systems porous mind and spirit possession and that came out was it early 2023 on my birthday april 4th yeah and yeah. i should have another book out on my birthday this year oh my gosh really <laughs> <laughs> Do you I hope do, that, do you do I that on purpose? Two books, two books out this year. You're going to have two books out this year of, of 2024? Well, one might be into 2024. I've been collecting quotes about, you know, my background, personal background is big T trauma, really big T trauma. You know, uh, I don't know, I think we need to go there. But so I've been collecting quotes because I believe only a spiritual connection can heal trauma. So I've been connect, collecting quotes for about 50 years on spirit healing trauma. So I'm putting those all together in an anthology, and, and that'll be the book. And the, the title we're going to use is a quotation from Winston Churchill, when you're going through hell, keep going. Mm, that's perfect. 
I think that's exciting to hear you share that about this upcoming book, because I think that that is definitely needed, just like your other book was really needed. And I'm excited to get that one as well. So I had contacted you because I know that you also love talking, uh, along with your love of unattached burdens, you also love talking about (laughs) guides and past lives. And that's something that I've really been feeling drawn towards over the past number of months. And it's, it's something that I have both of those things that I have personally come across in my own personal work. And Mm -hmm. I really wanted, yeah, to have you on here to share your wisdom and knowledge about both of these topics. Because again, I feel like there's a lot of people out there in the world that would really benefit from hearing about both of these. And so thank you so much for coming on here and talking about this. So I figured we could start with guides. Okay. And one thing I want that to I'm back up. Okay. Before. Yeah. Before we get to guides, I, <laughs> I want to take a step backwards. It's this issue about porosity of mind. Our minds are porous. Every living system is porous. Every cell is surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane. Stuff comes in, stuff goes out. Our bodies are like that. Our organs are like that. Ecosystems are like that. Every living system is porous. It's surrounded by a semi-permeable membrane. Why would our brains be any different? Why would our minds be any different? They're not. And our culture assumes they are. Tanya Lorman has referred to this as the citadel theory of mind that we consider our self, our mind, is contained in this nice bony little structure up here. Everything inside it is private. It's ours, we own it, and it constitutes our identity. Now that looks superficially like some great big strong fortress, right? Mm -hmm. But it's actually incredibly brittle. And there's a lot of evidence now that this misconception is at the root of a lot of the modern epidemic of mental illness and a whole bunch of our social problems and a whole bunch of other things. So I think it's a very deep, very important issue. And I think, you know, in IFS, the two of the things Dick made clear, which have revolutionized psychotherapy, were made up of parts, were multiple. And that's a good thing. That's not a byproduct of trauma. This is good. This is wonderful. And there's this thing called self however you want to characterize that. Those two things revolutionize psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. But I think porosity offers another great big step forward. And guides and unattached burdens and past life, all that, they don't really make sense if you have this citadel model of mind. You think, oh, it means I got a broken brain or something. Mm. And that's not the case. There's a wonderful image from William James, who I'm a big fan of. He said, people are like islands in the ocean. They appear to be separate and distinct, but they all come from the same seafloor. They all are the same seafloor. That's right. Now, Tanya Lerman, who's this anthropologist, who I think is one of the most brilliant and insightful people on the planet, and everybody should read her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I had a uh, 
if I had the power, I would say all psychotherapists should read How God Becomes Real by Tanya Lorman. Okay. It's, it's very much about how to develop this kind of contact. She, she and one of her colleagues wrote an article back in 2022 called Porosity is the Heart of Religion. And she says religion is not primarily about a belief structure. It's about experiences. And these experiences, religious experiences, are fundamentally about being in relationship with something outside ourselves. Right. So, so porosity and Tanya, Tanya, I shouldn't call her, I call her Tanya in my head. Dr. Lerman has studied spirituality and psychosis all over the world and has compared the results we get in compared to the results in China, India, Ghana, everywhere, you know, all around. So I want to start with this idea of porosity. And if we take that as reality, then experiencing the voice of an intelligence that's bigger than ours, that sort of makes sense. Right. And it doesn't mean our brain is broken. You know, it's sort of to be expected. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, because I think that's a great place to start, because then that makes all of this more sense. It makes more sense if we are looking at our minds as these porous open spaces that, like like you said it's not just this solid helmet that has things bouncing off of it but you know <laughs> yeah if anything gets in it means your brain's broken yeah whatever came in from outside is meaningless there's a woman in england isbel clark with an e on the end who's an psychologist in the, uh, you know, the British mental health, inpatient psychotic people. She is who she's dealt with. She talks about the billiard ball theory of mind, which is just like what Lorman discovered and they don't know each other's work. Yeah, it's so interesting. And she says, it's what causes problems for all these psychotic people because they hear one voice and they think their, their brain's broken and mm. you know, they, they, they shatter. But even, you know, if a society has that viewpoint as a whole or like the healthcare system within a, a culture or a society, then again, if someone is experiencing those things and then they go somewhere and share that and then they're told, oh, you're psychotic and let me put you in this institution, then that's obviously going to have a huge impact yeah, on how that. We don't, we don't have a container for those experiences. People have those experiences and most other cultures have this container, this cultural container, the person can come back to, I'm having these incredible, bizarre experiences and the culture can help them. Because we don't have that, people tend to be very hostile and fearful about these experiences of the other. And that tends to make them negative. Right, and make people scared and yeah. fearful of yeah. of opening themselves up to the possibility of receiving yeah. these. I want to mention somebody else who's who doesn't know about uh, Tanya Lurman and who doesn't know about Isabel Clark, a professor of philosophy from McGill University, retired Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called The Buffered Self. He calls it The Buffered Self. And he says this began around the Reformation and Counter-Reformation, and it's at the root of most of our modern social problems. And something he doesn't develop, but I think in, in studying his work got really clear to me, 
You know, we talk about how alienation has been this major theme in the West since maybe 1850, and mm -hmm. it, it destroyed so many. This citadel model of mind is alienation. Mm. You have that fundamental view that yourself is buffered, separate, a fortress, you're going to be alienated. Yeah. And, and uh, Professor Taylor does a great job of tracing historically how this came in and, you know, what it's done. And so there are, there are all these different streams of people who don't know about each other mm -hmm. <laughs> sort of flow together and I think are saying the same thing. Right. And I, I always think that's a good sign that that's not then just a coincidence when mm -hmm. there are multiple people in different areas of the world coming up with these or experiencing and expressing these theories that there's something to this. Yeah. And coming from different, different knowledge bases, right? Anthropology, philosophy and history and inpatient psychology. Right. Exactly. And so I guess as listeners are taking this in, this I, this concept of porous mind, and as we go into this conversation talking about guides and past lives, I guess, what would you like to invite listeners to, I guess, maybe be aware of or notice within themselves as we go into this conversation? I think we're all really attached to this citadel model of mind. And it's sort of insidious and... Um, very, very difficult to uproot or change. Dan Siegel, you know, the interpersonal neurobiology guy, mm -hmm. he talks about this. He says it's built into the grammar of our language. And before we'll be able to think <laughs> about a porous mind, we have to change the grammar of our language. Mm -hmm. And he proposed some new words. Instead of I, it was we, M parenthesis, we, you know, yeah. because... And instead of interrelationships, it was intra-relationships because there actually isn't a line between us and the other person. Mm -hmm. But it's all very, very awkward, and it's very hard to think about because we don't have we don't have language for it that's right. adequate. Right. Yeah. So I guess just kind of inviting listeners that might be noticing parts of themselves already that might be like, "Wait, what?" You know, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> to, to just that... be open to just see if you can get curious and yep. just notice as you listen to our conversation today, maybe what comes forward within you. Yeah. And that's a normal reaction. I think to this idea, to any pretty radical new idea, mm -hmm. I want to come up one other thing. I don't like jargon, but that woman in England Isabel Clark. She hates the word subconscious and unconscious. She said that implies all this stuff is under or less than or bad. And both those words have all this baggage on them. And she said, those words are so bad, they almost make it impossible for us to think clearly about the nature of mind, especially this porous nature of mind. Mm -hmm. So she proposed the word transliminal. Mm -hmm. Translimin means a, a threshold. And there has been research in transliminality, and there's a transliminality scale that's been developed. So there's quite a history around this word. But she says, if you think about all these experiences as being transliminal, like dreams, they come from the trend. It just means they come from across a threshold. They can be negative, positive. They can be wiser than you, like a guide. They can, you know, it, it's much less judgmental. And 
she didn't know this, but there's also a very famous anthropologist, Victor Turner, who used the term liminality. He studied rituals, especially initiation rituals. And he said, they all have the same basic structure. You start with the person in a culture. A certain set of procedures or rituals is done to remove them from the culture and take them into this special realm, which he called the liminal. And he said, <laughs> Isabel Clark would call it the transliminal. He just calls it the liminal. When, when people are in that realm of the liminal, they can make changes in a way they can't when they're back in their normal cultural reality. Mm. This liminal realm during the initiation rituals, profound changes are made in the person. And then there's another set of rituals to bring them back into the ordinary reality, the cultural reality. Mm. And it's a very similar idea. It almost reminds me too of the theory of the like the seven different planes that mm -hmm. are available to us. And I'm wondering if if that's talking about kind of the same concept that there's we don't have to call it the subconscious and the conscious, but this understanding that there are these various planes of energy that we can access. Mm -hmm. And I think we're already living on like the third plane, I think as humans, as a cellular body, I'm, I don't, I can't remember, but, but then like the seventh plane is where we can access this creator energy that is inside of us. Mm -hmm. That is also out here. And this yeah. idea that we've been talking about that we aren't these separate islands, that we are all sharing the same sea floor. Yeah. yeah. And we can just kind of practice util like being able to work that muscle <laughs> in our in our being of mm. knowing how to connect with that and to have a relationship with it. Right. Yeah. And the basic tools are classical IFS. Be curious. Yeah. <laughs> this is you know, it this is not pathology. No. Right. And be curious and welcoming. Yeah. And good stuff will come in with guides and other and other religious experiences, extrasensory perception, creativity. You know, I'm gonna <laughs> I, I warned you I can't stay on a straight line. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. The, the transliminality scale was developed as a scale to measure psychopathology originally. And there was another one called the schizotype scale, which was developed, mm -hmm. which was purely, this was pathology based. And the, you know, it was to measure who's going to be psychotic. But the guy who developed the schizotype scale realized after about 10 years of doing this, that the higher you scored on the schizotype scale, you were also vastly more creative. Mm. You also had a lot more extrasensory perception experiences. Let's see, there were there were a couple other things up there that were really desirable. Oh, religious, profound religious experiences. So, and the transliminality scales like that too. You you go way up into this openness, thinner membrane. Mm -hmm. People tend to have all these wonderful things and problems, and our culture has such a lousy attitude that we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. And we don't have ways to help people with the problematical stuff, the UBs. and Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I do feel like we're in this interesting, I feel like as a as a world of humans right now, we're, we're, I feel like we're in an upswing towards kind of this age of renaissance again, of bursting creativity, spirituality, 
openness. Mm-hmm. And so I, I yeah, I, I think this is where having conversations like this and you releasing information that you do through your books is really impactful right now and needed because I think the majority of human beings right now on this planet, I think we're having like a, a new age of awakening into this forest mind. I hope you're right. I'm such a hermit up here on my mountainside that I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to Kay Gardner recently and she told me that in her level ones, a lot more people are asking about guides and UBs and all this stuff right at the beginning. Yeah. So it does seem to be, that does seem to be happening. Yeah. I completely, completely agree. And I absolutely believe that. And so one thing that I remember reading in your book, when you start talking about guides specifically, is in regards to, in order to, and correct me if I'm not saying this mm-hmm. in, in the right way, but you you talk about how in order to be able to even be aware of guides or receive guidance, guide energy connection is you talk about the constraint release model that is IFS. Super, super important point. I'm so glad you brought that up right here as we're just getting our motor running. (laughs) The idea of going out there and getting a guide by like building up guide muscles, I suppose that might work, maybe. (laughs) But it's it's not so good. A much more efficient way and less painful way is to find all the parts in you who don't want contact with guides. Mm. Who feel frightened by this idea that if they go inside themselves, they will meet an intelligence that's wiser than they are. That's a terrifying idea to many people. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, and everybody has parts like that. My experience is that the guides are right here. They're waiting for us. They want to make contact with us. And the reason they don't is because we don't invite them in in a real way. In Islam, one of the things, I don't know if it's in the Quran or not, I think it is, Allah is closer to us than our juggler vein. (laughs) That's That's a little bloody. But there's a wonderful image from Emanuel Swedenborg that I really like. He said, most of us think a spirit is some exotic bird of paradise and we need to travel to the other side of the planet to some jungle to make contact with her. He says, no, no, no. She's right here. And she so wants our attention that she's brushing your eyelids with her wingtips. I read that part in your book and I took a moment and just closed my eyes after I read that line because it really spoke to me. And I could almost feel that, right? That kind of the tip of the feathers just brushing against the eyelids. And again, that reminder that, yeah, this isn't some far away distant thing that Mm. it is. It's inside of us and it's right here. It's all around. And we've been trained to push it away and our culture pushes it away. That's right. That's right. So it's interesting because the timing of our interview this past weekend, so it's a Monday as we're recording right now. And This past weekend for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I engaged in a theta healing training. And that was fascinating because for those listening who may not know, it's training to help you get into like a theta brainwave state where the belief is that's where kind of we can function on that seventh plane. 
-hmm. and we can feel connected to creator energy, self-energy, spirit energy, universal energy, nature energy, whatever it is you want to call it or how you want to refer it to. And in that energy state, as we're connecting with that, we can then experience healing and have these connections with guides, guardian angels, whatever they might be, parts. And yeah. and it it is just so fascinating to me that, you know, because I went into the training with parts of me being like, how are they going to teach us to do this? And it was, I don't want to say it was simple, but at the same time, it was an experience of, oh, yeah, this is, this is right here. Mm-hmm. It's right here. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Yeah. It's just, you know, Dick said something. I He never asks people, he never does any kind of induction or, you know, how are we going to, he just says, okay, let's all go inside. Everybody knows how to do that. It's right here. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's right. It's right inside of us. Our culture has such a poisonous attitude to all of this. A lot of people who've come to me in the past few years are young people, mainly women, who have a lot of extrasensory perception, who are mediums, natural mediums. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, I can't even tell my therapist about this. I tell my therapist, when I walk down the street, I hear dead people talking to me all the time. And I see ghosts all around. They're going to they're gonna try and, you know, lock me up or you know, give me a hard time. To, and I'm just telling them it's a, it's a dangerous gift. You have a wonderful, dangerous gift. And our mm -hmm. culture is terrible at receiving it. And it is a gift. It is and a gift. Absolutely. All of these things that, yeah, our culture has vilified or made movies about in a way that make them seem dangerous or, yeah, it, it, it does. It makes when you do start to notice these things about yourself, again, parts get activated from positive intention based on our cultural messages of, oh, well, oh, this is bad or this is dangerous or yeah, don't tell, don't tell your therapist <laughs> about this. Anybody. Don't tell anyone about this. Right. So yeah, if we can have again, more of these conversations and talk about the research, talk about the history, my mm -hmm. hope is that more people will get curious about their own gifts. Mm -hmm. Talk about especially is hearing voices. If you, if you went to a psychiatrist and told them you were hearing voices not long ago, that could have gotten you locked up. Mm -hmm. Now, hearing voices is a normal human phenomena. Normal, normal. People who've been in marriages of over 50 years when one spouse dies, something like 80% of the surviving spouse hears the voice of the deceased spouse. That's normal. Socrates heard the voice of a daimon, a spirit, a guide, his whole life. And he based his whole life, his major life decisions on what the daimon told him to do. And much of his philosophy grew out of that, generally considered to be the fountainhead of Western philosophy all sorts of other people. And if you're told this is bad and it means you have a broken brain, you won't get the great wisdom that's very often being offered. The other thing you talk about in your book is being open to understanding how to discern between guides and UBs, unattached mm -hmm. burdens. Because that's another thing you brought up in your book was some of the most evil, horrible things that have been done in our world 
have been done maybe by people who have claimed to been told or they received these messages. By people who felt self-righteous and who were absolutely convinced that they were doing something wonderful and important. Hitler was totally self-righteous. He thought he was, you know, the the race and living room for the Germans. And he was a nature mystic and a vegetarian and an animal lover, you know? And you know know how many millions Hitler killed? Mao Mm. Zedong, who probably murdered over 60 million people, also was absolutely convinced of his self-righteousness and that he was here to save the planet. Pol Pot, who killed 30% of his countrymen was also completely convinced he was doing something wonderful. And what yeah. I, I want to say, we're not smarter than those people. <laughs> we have to be pretty careful when we start thinking we've got the, we've got the absolute answers here. Because yeah. we're, we're not, you know, we could fall prey to the same kind of delusional structures they did. Yeah. So it's being aware, and you talk about in your book, the different ways to kind of help invite awareness to is this what I'm receiving? Is this coming from a higher level of energy, like from a guide, or is it coming from a lower level of energy? Okay, let's talk about those because they're super important. This is the issue of discernment. That's how the religious people talk about it, or the discerning of spirits. In the Bible, there are two primary standards. Number one is uh, by their fruits you shall know them. And I think this is the, the ultimate standard still. It's, it's the real test. If in welcoming this into your life, does it make your life better, more productive, more caring, all these wonderful things? Now, the big trouble with this, it only works in hindsight. Mm. <laughs> you know, the other one is, is take whatever this experience is to trusted spiritual elders. Kind of hard to find trusted spiritual elders these days. Yeah. to put it mildly. Right. <laughs> and a lot of the ones out there advertising themselves are absolutely horrible. They're monsters. So I've been looking, I've been trying to develop real-time tools of discernment that can help people when they have this experience. It might feel very good. It you know, might have all these wonderful qualities. Is this something truly beneficial? Or is this some um, intoxication? The first one is fear. How does the entity being, I don't know what word you want to use. <laughs> yeah, whatever. That's your fear. Yeah. If you experience, you know, if you're, you will have fear if you're meeting these great big internal forces. <laughs> I mean, they're awe-inspiring often, which is very close to fear. So how does it react to your fear? If it attacks the fear and uses that to control you and pokes at it and get, you know, that's not good. The, the benign ones will all, I would say always in my experience, but I don't trust always. They back off because they respect our free will so much. They won't come into our system without an invitation. Mm. So when they sense you're afraid of them, they back off respectfully and wait for you to calm down so that you can move to them with curiosity and care. So that's number one. How does this, whatever it is, experience respond to your fear? The second one is, does this experience make you feel superior to anybody else? Mm. Does your nose start going up in the air? 
oh, I'm enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> this is not good. Not good. No good. And this being one up is truly poison. And it's a very popular poison in America. A lot of times we compete for that. Absolutely. Poison cup. Yeah. <laughs> it's also true that feeling less than other people is not from guides either. And, and a lot of trauma survivors swallow that one all the time. You know, I'm worthless, all that kind of stuff. So any of those sort of comparative, I'm better than, I'm less than, that's all a, a really a sign that this is probably not a good thing to invite into your system. And the third one is what we really want to measure is, does this increase the amount of love? But the word love is so surrounded and saturated with manure all around it. You know, like the country Western songs, which equate love with getting drunk and codependence. <laughs> and, and all, you know, it's really bad, you know. Right. So it's, you can't go directly to that word. That concept is so contaminated. So I've been looking for a way to try and track this that's free of, of all that stuff. And what I came up with was using the IFS concept of polarities. You can, everybody has pre-existing polarities and you can, inside yourself or in your client, you can just say, notice one of those pre-existing polarities. When this energy is around you, is it more hostile, more intense, or are they a little more peaceful? Not that they've yeah. changed their opinions you know that the issue isn't resolved but is there conflict over it more peaceful or more hostile right. and that seems to be a good a good measure i want to say these three measures are really tentative and beginning steps and i'm hoping and expecting that people will come up with much better ones well those are very helpful you know in the present time and i appreciate you being open to the, the this could grow and change. Well, let and... me say something about that because that's so important, Natalie. I think I've spent my whole life studying this stuff and the connection of spirituality and healing. I don't think I'm really in kindergarten yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I think I'm still in diapers. Yeah. I any I the human ignorance is astoundingly vast. Astoundingly yeah. vast. We know almost nothing. And so I mean, yeah. Yeah. Anybody yeah. Who's telling you they got everything figured out, beware. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it's that's where, again, I'm so appreciative of when I'm talking with people that they are very clear of this is, this is open and this is growing and this is organic. So. I appreciate you, you know, helping to come up with those three for the time being, because that is those three things make sense to me as you explain them. And I feel like those three measures will be really helpful to discern. Is this a guide energy? Is this something else? Super important that we respect our client or the other person's language and we learn their language and we don't try and impose ours. That gets, that gets us in so much trouble. I want to tell this little story about Milton Erickson. He was a psychiatrist and he, was, uh, he, he worked for a long time in a locked ward for psychotics. And there was this guy who every day, they would just get him out of his room, bring him, he'd stand in the hallway and talk word salad all day. And he'd been doing this for years and years. 
and Dr. Erickson came on the ward and when he had time he went and he stood next to the guy and he started copying down the word salad and learning the grammar of the word salad and some of the vocabulary the guy used over and over again. And then after he felt he got it, for a couple of days he'd go out there and he'd just talk the word salad back to the guy. After only two, three days, in the middle of the word salad, the guy turned to him and said, cut it out, doc. <laughs> and then went back to his word salad. So just by learning the man's language, he broke through what had been total isolation for years and years. We, we need to learn the other person's language. It's arrogant and domineering to try and force your language and metaphor system onto other people and they don't like it and their parts don't like it and it gunks up everything. Yeah. So, you know, all this stuff I've said about guides and these techniques, I would, I would just hold that in the back and listen to what your client says. I've worked with a fair number of Islamic people and they talk about jinn, which are the possessing beings in Islam. So I'm perfectly happy to talk about jinn. Because again, like you said, it's it's opening it up to helping the other person's system feel heard and understood and not coming at them with maybe parts of yourself, parts of your system that are like, oh, I know the right way and here's yeah. what it is. So in regards to guides, I guess, you know, I had some questions in mind and some of these questions, you know, is one in particular right now that's coming to me that's just kind of very, I was about to say the word simple, but I don't know if that's, this is simple. But the question of what do guides, I guess for someone listening right now, who's like, okay, so I'm hearing them talk about how to discern if it, this is, you know, if what I'm hearing or seeing or connecting with as a guide, or is it something like an unattached burden? How do we, let's say, experience guides? So let's yeah, say someone is someone is turning inside and yeah, how would, I guess, what would be some examples of ways in which someone might experience and connect with a guide? There are all kinds of different ways. And it's really important that all the different sensory modalities can be pathways for the experience of guides. Very often guides can come in after a major unburdening, when an exile is unburdened, you know, there's that little innocent part. And it welcomes in light and love and warmth and compassion. And often people just start uh, tearing spontaneously. And there's, you know, there's the, so there's an emotional component. Very often there's a visual component. I see this thing. Uh, very often there's somatic components, you know. So it, it can be all of that. What would be some examples do you care to share either of your own or ones that you've witnessed with other okay, people? I'll, I'll share one that I witnessed because it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I was working with a woman and she had these, she, what she saw in her inner world were these little spiders that, that had been stepped on sort of. They were like mostly crushed and they were sort of pathetic looking, but they were still sort of creeping around. And she let them in her system because she's such a caring person. And we started asking all the questions you would ask about UVs or other things. And, you know, why are you here? And they didn't have a good intention for her, but she let them in because they looked pathetic and she was this wonderful, caring person. And She came to believe with a little help that this isn't really where they belonged and they'd actually do a lot better if we helped them go where they did belong. She got them out. And then she started experiencing this presence 
of a, a feminine energy that was very, very loving and very, very big. And she identified it with Mary and her, her head turned toward one side and her eyes closed and a tear started slowly rolling down her cheek. And it, to me, it looked like the light in the room changed. Her face mm -hmm. started glowing. And it was just, I mean, she was an, a, an attractive woman, but she became overwhelmingly beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> and that energy was, I mean, it was just like, whoa. <laughs> and there were almost no words. Like no words necessarily, let's say maybe from Mary, but it was yeah. a feeling. Primarily a feeling and that one tear rolling down her face mm -hmm. and this sense of great beauty. And I've checked with her later and that has been a life-changing experience for her. That's beautiful. And sometimes they can present maybe through statements, words. Yeah, yeah they, can come, they can come with statements. Yeah, they can be somewhat harsh too, but in a loving way, in a forceful way. Mm. It's, it's not always you're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> what might that sound like? Um, well, it's like I said, my guides are telling me I'm in kindergarten and some days they tell me you're, you got, you got some loaded diapers on you today, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've had experience, you know, I've had um, experiences where I've worked with other people and they're definitely connecting with, you know, they're in their self energy. And yeah, typically it's when they've experienced and, you know, being with an exiled wounded part and there's been an unburdening. And then I've, I've, yeah, I've witnessed this where sometimes people will just say something or they'll be like, I'm hearing this. And it'll be a very, yeah, kind of a statement that it's, I couldn't, they couldn't say it was coming from themselves, mm -hmm. but it was coming from something else. Yeah. Very often those statements for me are a lot wiser than I am. Exactly. Yes. One Another thing I got from Kay Gardner, who I think is, you know, Mitchie Rose finally got some acknowledgement for her very foundational role in the creation of IFS. I don't think Kay's gotten the acknowledgement she deserves. I think she's another mother of IFS. Anyway, a practice I got from her that when she first suggested it, I thought was so stupid, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> arrogant Bob, arrogant Bob. But because it was Kay, I listened. And she said a lot of people find they can do a written dialogue with their guide where they couldn't just talk to it. So she said, just, you know, take a minute, go into your inner world, sit down and say, you know, just start writing, hello guide. And then, you know, and let your hand write. And stuff came out that was seemed smarter than me. Mm. And I'm going, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> but it, it's become a, it's become a daily practice for me. It's part of oh, my, that's great my daily practice. And so you started off with hello guide and you just yeah. start writing. Well, sometimes I have questions like if I've been working with certain parts and you know, this, I'll say, that seems so weird. Was that real? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, was I deluded there? And you know, so yeah. And automatic writing has a huge history that 
I learned more about after I realized this process could sometimes hook me up with something inside myself that was smarter than me. Mm. You know, the 12 steps have that wonderful phrase, higher power. And I think, you know, a lot of IFS, I think, has dumbed down spirituality enough so that most Americans could tolerate it. <laughs> that's one of the brilliant <laughs> things about IFS. I think that's true about the 12 steps too. The phrase higher power makes spirituality something so obvious you can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. You know, people in a meeting, somebody will say, what do you mean higher power? And then you'll say something like, oh, let's go stand by the ocean. Mm-hmm. And you, you do, and then, well, who's bigger? <laughs> or let's go for a walk in the forest yeah. you know who's bigger you know and it just it's so you can't really deny it when it's brought down to something that simple right exactly and i i like your examples of nature mm-hmm. and that was something that again like over the weekend doing my theta healing training i appreciated the trainer tammy you know letting us know that whatever the person wants to call creator she's like it it could be nature if they want to call it god it's whatever they want to call it self and so i think that's something to be open to right when you say higher power it doesn't necessarily mean if we want to call it god great it could be the ocean nature mother nature you know (laughs) what'd you say it could be fred we could call it fred Fred. yeah (laughs) or julie julie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly yeah exactly and but if that, we're working with clients it's almost none of our business what they choose to call it that's right i want to talk about this thing of the real difficulty finding guides is all our blocks to them because they they are scary especially in our culture they're not welcome we've been trained to reject this stuff as poison bad signs of insanity you know it's yeah. so that, there's a whole bunch of garbage in the way. And so, you know, the first the first thing for people who want to start here is let's find all the parts who don't like this idea. Right. Or let's imagine a wise, loving presence coming into you and you start to vibrate with warmth and love. And it's so strong, it starts making you cry. What parts are running for the hills? <laughs> let's give up that you know big wonderful experience and let's talk to the parts who are running for the hills yeah or maybe trying to fight against it yeah 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 or whatever they're doing right they're there i i firmly believe that these experiences and this kind of it's more just a depth of experience i think rather than distinct discrete experiences it's a it's a depth of experience and living from living from a very deep place. I believe that's available to all of us all the time. Mm. And it's just because we have all these parts who are terrified of it. Yeah. I mean, you don't really want to be going into ecstasy as you're on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that those kinds of states are available. That's right. They definitely are. And yeah, I think you bring up a very good point and that's circling it back to IFS and that's where IFS is so helpful is it gives us a model and a way and a path of connecting with the parts that are blocking Yeah, that connection. Constraint release, constraint release, and then some more constraint release. (laughs) That's right. 
And you mentioned in your book, we've already talked about the the writing, the writing with guides as a way to connect. You also talk about the path meditation. Yeah, yeah, that's Dick's classic. I've got a version of it on my, attached to my website. Uh, it's it's a very classic way to attach to guides. Well, let me ask you this: Would how do you feel about? Would you be willing to guide us through your version in connecting with a guide right now? I'd rather do another meditation. Okay. You want me to lead a meditation? This one isn't specifically about connecting with guides, but it very often opens us up to guides. And it's it's one um, IFS people won't know because it's not an IFS meditation. Okay. okay, beautiful. Okay, so let's just all take a moment and take that familiar path down into our interior world. And I like to think of it as the longest journey any human being ever makes the 18 inches from our head down into our heart. And as we make that journey, what I'm gonna ask you all to do is look inside yourselves for the center of your life force. Most people in the West experience this as a spark of light. Very often people just see all this darkness at first and then they find that spark of light down in there, deep down in there. Other people experience this as a vibration or a tone or a hum. Some people experience this as the center of warmth and heat within their body. I don't know how you will experience this center today, but however you experience it, start focusing your attention on this. If it's light, as you focus, you'll start to notice more detail. With all of these, as you focus, you'll start to notice more detail, more texture. With the light, you'll probably notice the colors in the light and the movement. And there seems to be a rule in the inner world, the more you focus your intention, attention on anything, the larger it becomes. So invite this light with your attention and care to just start growing and filling your body slowly. Notice everything that comes up in your body that might be a constriction or a congested place or some object or block or obstruction, anything like that. Don't fight with it now. Just notice it and notice detail. Notice where it is in your body, any details does it have color does it move notice all of that about all these constrictions or blockages and then just let that light keep growing or that warmth keep growing or that sound keep growing and then let this grow all the way to your skin throughout your body Noticing any obstructions or objects, anything in there where these core energies don't move through easily and sweetly. 
all the way to your skin. Now, let these energies sort of go poof and go past your skin, maybe a couple feet all around you. And notice, are there any shadows moving in that space around you? Any other objects or beings? Any lights outside you start to notice? Just open all your sensory modalities and perhaps notice detail. And as you're ready, you can start to let the light come back down inside yourself. Thanking it for whatever it showed you today. And hopefully remembering all the obstructions and parts and blockages and movements that light revealed to you. And then when you're ready, making the journey back up from your heart into your head and focusing back here. And I would suggest to those of you who are listening and who have a pause button <laughs> that you pause right now and maybe make an outline of the human body front and back and make a little sketch of everything you found in or around your body. Mm, I love that. Yeah. You will, you can, you can notice guides, unattached burdens, parts of you who are uncomfortable with these inner world journeys, all sorts of stuff shows up. And I want to say a little more about this meditation. This is the way I use, you know, people are always asking me, well, if I'm working with someone with an unattached burden, how do I protect myself? Well, the first thing is when you're not afraid of them, they, they don't have any power. But this is a very good way to protect yourself. If you practice this meditation, you know, I could have done it much more slowly today. A lot of times one on one with a client, I'll take 20, 30 minutes and we'll we'll notice and talk about all the things that come up as they do this. But if you practice this meditation, you can do it in a few breaths and it, it fills your system so that no unwelcome energy can get in. I think it's much better than trying to build big boundaries around yourself. Mm. So kind of envisioning that that light filling you. Filling yeah. you and going outside of you. Yeah. There's no room in you for anything to get in. Right. And you know, if you're building boundaries all around you, you know the old thing about protectors, they mm. all they always invite what they fear the most. Right got all these big walls up it invites attack okay and it's sort of a waste of energy whereas this is never a waste of energy it's yeah. always increasing your basic life force so i find this a very very useful thing for people to play with if they like it yeah that's beautiful and so as i was engaging in that turning in that meditation as you were just guiding us through that i'll share what i noticed what i noticed was there was a shadow to kind of this the back right right here i know people can't see what i'm doing but it's like the <laughs> diagonal to my right on the back and it was interesting though because how i saw it it was there very close to me 
but there was also still a layer of light around me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then, yeah, then there was a shadow. Yeah. So it'd be a wonderful thing to get to know. Yeah. And then to my upper left, there were one or two glowing orbs. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that was very interesting. So I love your invitation to draw an outline of the body to then maybe make a sketch. Yeah. And if, you know, if I've got time with an individual client, I'll try and make sure they have colored implements because the unconscious loves bright colors. Mm. So that can be very, very helpful. Yeah. And so when you say that, like, what do you mean in regards to you would invite the person to use bright colors? Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd have crayons or craypaws or magic markers, you know, those really bright colored ones and say, okay, here's your outline. Here's the things. Yeah. That's great. Thank you so much for guiding me and all of us through that. That was beautiful. And that's also a parts mapping method. Yeah. I, I've modified that from a guy named William Baldwin. I, it was not, it was not original. And do you feel like this would be a good segue? Anything else you want to mention in regards to guides before we make our transition into past lives? Yeah, there is one other thing that I think is super important. We, in the West, we have a native Western shamanic tradition, which we largely ignore. And we go to every other tribe and culture on the planet looking for shamanic traditions. The native shamanic traditions in the West, I believe, are primarily the Neoplatonists, and their practice of theurgy and the hermetic philosophers and and some of the alchemists and we could there's a tremendous amount of material on this and people are started uh starting to research this there's a wonderful guy with the magnificent name of Wouter Hanagraf, <laughs> who was doing, was doing great research on this but anyway the neoplatonists just to pick a a starting point to talk about this stuff. They felt that there was this realm of pure ideas, the one, the unity up here. And then there was this realm they called the daimonic, D-A-I, not demon, daimon, daimonic realm here, which was in between the divine and us. And then there were us humans down here. And that we could not jump that middle layer and relate directly to the one we had to relate through daimons and people would have their own individual daimons and they had this practice called theurgy, which basically means God working, which was a shamanic soul flight, but they also invited fragments of the divine to come down and inhabit people. And they would have, they had ecstatic rites or statues so that they could talk with the divine in the statue. Mm-hmm. So it was a highly, highly shamanic practice. But I, I like thinking of guides in terms of this daimonic intermediaries. And I think most of us need that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, gang, uh, I don't think most of us are ready to make that jump right up to, you know, I know there are all these non-dual people who are going, yeah, I can just, not me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not there yet. So I think that's a very helpful way to conceptualize this. And you can find similar kinds of structures, Hinduism, Buddhism, all over the place with, you know, there are these intermediaries, which we would call guides. Right. 
And again, I feel like if we can get curious and turn towards the parts of us that are have fears or blocking that connection to do yep. that. The other then, thing about constraint release is focus on the UBs in the person system first. Hmm. As you get the UBs out, the guides will become more and more and more apparent. It's, you know, that's a tremendous lesson of IFS. You, you work with the constraints, you work with the, the, the dirt, the garbage, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, the burdens. Right. You get the burdens off and the parts are wonderful. Yeah, we're not getting the parts out. We're getting no, the burden. No, no. We're, we're releasing the burdens. Yeah. Yeah. Or the unattached burdens or whatever it is. Yeah. Makes so much sense. And hopefully people listening to this, maybe as they listen to that guided meditation, they've maybe been opened up to getting curious about something that they witnessed or felt. Yeah. Great. All right. So just now moving into past lives, does that feel okay? Okay. So I feel like I want to ask this question in regards to past lives. Mm-hmm. What does past lives even mean? Great question. First thing I'd say, and you could probably predict this, is go with your client's language. If your client's talking about past lives, talk about past lives. And past lives can be very, very hard to distinguish from legacy burdens and unattached burdens and all that stuff. And I don't spend much time struggling with that. I think past lives, in, in, a, in I think a more rigorous sense, are based on the idea of reincarnation that in some previous life, we had certain experiences that are influencing who we are now. And I believe the evidence for reincarnation is overwhelming now. And of course, this being America, almost completely ignored. Maybe I should just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Dr. Ian Stevenson was the head of the MD, uh, psychiatrist. He was the head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia Medical School. So he's got, you know, the best academic credentials you possibly could. He got really interested in past life research, and he started doing it among children, past life experiences among children. And he got so interested in this that he got some funding and he quit his tenured professorship. Wow. And he spent 35 years pursuing this, and he came up with some absolutely incredible results. Many, many, many children, and these are young children, typically starting up two, three years, and they, they usually would quit talking about it very much by the time they were six or seven, but they would have memories of being born somewhere else. It was almost never a famous person. Mm-hmm. It was somebody in 75% of the cases, the previous person had died a violent death, and they'd often died young. And this this uh, person could go. He did a lot of work in India and Thailand because those cultures believe in reincarnation, which I think that just means these cases are more likely to be reported. There's now been a lot of research done in America. There's similar cases in America, but they tend to be hushed up. But anyway, he traced these and he would go to India and he would go to Thailand and he had people there and they would do the research. And they had made extensive investigation of about 2,500 cases. Wow. About 1,500 of those cases were what he considered proved, where they could like go to the village, take the kid Mm -hmm. to the village he said he came from, 
find the family the kid came from and the kid knew all the relatives names and knew how he died in the previous life all sorts of the detail is just incredible so 1500 of these cases there was this kind of confirmation for one one example to give you the an example of the level of detail this um kid in thailand Grand, you know, I said, I'm from that village. I'm from that village. He'd never been there. He lived with his grandmother. She'd never been there. They took a bus, went to the village. He went through all these back streets right to this other house and said hi to everybody and knew who everybody was in the family. They didn't know who he was. Right. And then they let him in and they were talking to him because he knew all this stuff he shouldn't know. And then he said, where's my Buddha necklace? Mm. And they brought out this necklace with Buddhas on it. And he got really upset. And he says, there's three Buddhas. Where's the third Buddha? And they're going, oh, sorry, sorry, we gave that away. (laughs) Wow. Tons of stuff like this. Thousands of pages of data. I want to, I've got this quote. JAMA, you know, Journal of American Medical Association, about the most conservative journal in america right i mean you don't get you don't get more uptight than jama (laughs) here's here's what they said reviewing his research and this is back in 1975 in regard to reincarnation he has painstakingly and unemotionally collected a detailed series of cases in which the evidence is difficult to explain on any other grounds has placed on record a large amount of data that cannot be ignored. Of course, it was ignored. <laughs> Not surprising, sadly. Yeah. yeah. This is back in 1975. He kept doing this work until he died in 2006. And now another guy, um, Dr. Jim Tucker, has taken over the research and is now doing it in America. There's, toward the end of his life, he got interested, Stevenson got interested in what he called the biology of reincarnation. Now, this mm. is really weird stuff. Mm. He published a two-volume, over 2,000-page book entitled, I think, Biology and Reincarnation. And this is where if somebody in one life was shot, there would be an entry wound and an exit wound, mm-hmm. and the kid would have birthmarks there. Oh, my gosh. And there was one kid who was born with a birth defect of missing all four of these fingers at about this level. And in the previous life, the person had lost those four fingers in an agricultural accident. Oh my gosh. He had 210 of these cases in this book, this two volume book with photographs and autopsy reports. And I mean, I was diligent. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So basically what I make up about this is we know nothing, Natalie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are just so ignorant. We're- yeah. Oh, wow. You know, and hearing you talk about this, it reminds me of uh, there was a Netflix docu-series. I think it was called, oh gosh, I'm forgetting it now, but it was a series of episodes focusing on one's ability to they covered different topics one of them was like near-death experiences and interviewing people that have had those and what they've encountered and then another episode was about reincarnation and i'm 
I can't remember the the gentleman's name that was doing all this research, but I I wonder if it's the same person that you're same two people that you're bringing up now because that's what they were focusing on was these volumes and volumes of uh, just information that he has collected around the world of children, like you were just saying, that are sharing these this information and they're like, where is this coming from? But it's connected to this other life. And it's interesting because when I was young, my mom talks about, and I have mental imagery of this within my mind too, but my mom will bring up a lot. She's fascinated by the fact when I was really little, I just started talking to her about my experience of dying in a situation where she's like, it sounds like you were describing a like smallpox situation within a Native American tribe. And she's like, you knew nothing about this stuff. She's like, I, you weren't taught this. I wasn't in school yet. I was at home with my mom, you know, and my younger brother. And she was just fascinated by the detail that I was describing this scene and this experience of this young girl at that time in this tribe dying mm-hmm. from this horrible disease and how I was connected to her. And this is something that didn't come to me as an adult in terms of being curious about this until recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've yeah been engaging in, in kind of help guided work with other guides of bringing connection to, to, mm-hmm. I believe a pat this past life. Very often in uh, Dr. Stevenson's and Dr. Tucker's research, the kids were very emotional and very adamant about this. Was this a big emotional experience for you as a kid? Like you'd go, I saw this and it was really oh, bad. Yeah, my mom, my mom said it was just, I was so like, this is matter of fact. And for her, she was just like, what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where is this coming from? How do you know this stuff? And she said the way I talked about it, it was just, this is this is reality. Mm-hmm. One of the big American cases is this kid named James Leninger, and his parents were Southern Baptists who do not believe in reincarnation. So they got interested because they wanted to prove the kid wrong. Mm. <laughs> they, did, they did all this stuff to prove the kid wrong, and the kid was right. Mm. He knew all this stuff about this soldier who died in World War II. And he, he, they even took him to meet the uh, dead soldier's sister. And the sister said, oh, this is my brother. Oh. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And they ended up writing a book about it. But it, they did not like this because it was against their religion, which they held very, very dear. Yeah. So that's a, that's a you know, you, you read some of these cases, the level of detail is something's going on and we don't have any idea what it is that's right i used to find that immensely distressing you mean i've spent my whole life studying all this stuff and i know nothing (laughs) (laughs) but now now i'm getting more and more able to enjoy it right it kind of frees up i feel like this pressure of feeling like we have to have all the answers and just kind of you connect with that beginner's mind, <laughs> that mm-hmm. openness of just, okay, I'm here to learn. 
whatever I receive at any point. All right. <laughs> There's plenty of room in here for me to learn. That's, like, that's, that's right. Plenty of room. And so in regards to past lives, I guess, how would you say our past lives impact the present? So those of us like me, you, those people listening to this right now, if we all have a connection to past lives, how does that, yeah, what are the impacts that those have for our life now? Some people zero, some people overwhelming. And it's just like very often people, you, you can think of past lives as legacy burdens or unattached burdens. And, you know, very often everybody even the most rigid materialist rationalist, you can convince that legacy burdens are real because there's hard science around it. Right. You know, the Rachel Yehuda's stuff with the Holocaust survivors, there's the Diaz wrestler experiment and all these other experiments with rats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the standard of proof in America. If you can do it to rats, it's real. <laughs> If you can't do it to rest, it's not But real. you know what's funny, though? That's so, that's sadly so true, because that's the example I've always used with people when I talk about legacy burdens is that rat study with, like, the, yeah. the cherry blossom smell. And then when yeah. people hear that study, you can see the parts of them that had, you know, doubts go, oh, wow, okay, well, then that must be true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they let that – so very often if – People have what I'm assuming is a past life or UB kind of thing going on in them. I just let them hold it as a legacy burden. So we can get a external energy, which is a phrase I'm using a lot now, an external energy, because it's about as blank as I could come up with a phrase, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can help them get that out and they can think of it as a legacy burden and they feel a lot better and mm have any investment in changing their ideology right there are a few a few important differences i think legacy burdens i always want to offer the person you can just get it out of a person and have them pass it up to the light or have it disintegrate or deal with it as a burden but i always want to offer the person the opportunity to pass it back up through their ancestors and help clear the lineage so that they can be better connected to their family now, so that's a big difference between UBs and legacy burdens, an extra, an extra thing I would offer. With past lives is something else that very often has to happen. And that's some kind of witnessing. Now, so what, you know, what happened? What do you see that parts experiencing, you know, whatever it is being burned to death. And I've had quite uh, several people being burned to death. And then what happened as you were dying? And they describe it. And then as you were dying, did you have any beliefs or did you make any vows? And very often the quote, past life spirit, whatever this is, I don't want to, you know, we'll say, yeah, I was going to get vengeance. I wasn't going to, I was going to keep, come back and keep getting vengeance or, Mm -hmm. or my daughter was there. I couldn't leave. And then I asked them, well, remember what it was like right after you died? And very often they say, well, I was hanging around my body and then there was somebody else near there that I went into. Or I went into my daughter, I couldn't go, I didn't want to go up. And then I try and take help that spirit go up into another realm, another place instead of hanging around down here. And I take the time to try and convince it 
this was a mistake you made. It's not, it's not good for you and it's not good for the others. I want to go off on a couple tangents here. Go for it. <laughs> I love your tangents. Okay. My wife is Korean and the Korean shamanic tradition is fascinating, full of wisdom, 5,000 years old. It's almost all women, overwhelmingly women. And they work with, uh, I think, what we would call past life or possession experiences. And they say, the reason these spirits stick around instead of go to the realm they should to move on is primarily because their suffering hasn't been witnessed. Mm. And they have, they have different, they divide up emotions differently than we do. And they have an emotion they call Han, which is injustice, anguish, and pain, but it doesn't have vengeance in it. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's sort of, it's different. But anyway, they say it's the Han of these spirits that hasn't been witnessed. So what the shaman will do, it'll go into a trance, it'll invite in this spirit, and then it will witness the Han of the spirit, and then the spirit's able to leave the person and move on, go where it needs to go. Very, very IFS, witnessing the part so it can come back and release right. its and so is that the belief is that with this type of situation with past lives, it's the soul is kind of like stuck within us? Could be. You know, I mean, a lot of people, I've just been reading a book uh, about this stuff in India and they believe, you know, well, we're all reincarnated. So some of it, a lot of it's like that, but so that it would be more universal than that. But I think they, they become problematical when those souls get stuck within us. Especially if, like you were saying, the way in which maybe they died carried burdens with it or this need of needing to be witnessed and understood. Yeah, or they made some vow. Yeah. I had one. I'm not sure if this was a past life case or a UB case or you know, I don't spend much time sorting that way, but the person remembered being in a stone basement chained to a wall. And there was a little tiny window they could sort of see out to a grassy field and then an oak tree. And they, uh, it got clear or somewhat clear to them that whoever had had that castle, they all fled. And they left that person there in the basement chained to the wall where he starved to death with rats running over him. Mm. And as that person in the basement died, he vowed, I'm going to get vengeance on. And there was a prince or some kind of military leader, and there was somebody who betrayed him. So there were two men he wanted vengeance on. Mm. And that was, he was going to do that. And that he put the energy of his death into vengeance. And so he was sort of stuck on this plane looking for vengeance. Yeah. And then after working with that spirit for quite a while, it, it gave up that attitude and what it imagined or the person imagined, whoever, whatever is doing this, was leaving the window, going out the window of that cell out across the grassy field, laying down under the oak tree and dying and releasing to the light. Now, yeah. what is that? Is, is that a past life? Is that, who Who knows? Who, and actually, right. in a way, who cares? The, right. person felt, the person felt a lot of relief. Yes. I'd like to share an experience I had recently, when I say recently, probably within the past four months, four or five months, where I was working with a, a healer 
And I came across this memory, this image in my mind, kind of like you were just describing for this other person where I was like, well, this is not something I experienced in my lifetime, but it was of a woman and it appeared to be hundreds of years ago and she was trapped in a cage and it was out in public and clearly she was about to die. And there was a lot of shaming energy towards Mm. her. And it was a a beautiful experience of being able to connect with her and witness her story. And in the moment, I, you know, I'm like, well, this isn't my direct experience, but this is clearly something within me that I need to be with and I need to witness. And it it was really sad and beautiful to witness that she was a healer. And loved connecting with nature and using medicines and in that way. She lived in the woods with her daughter. and But then the people at that time didn't understand. And she was killed. And she was trapped in this cage. And being with her and witnessing what I needed to witness for her and with her, I could, I remember, it's just all these vivid images in my mind now of her beautiful soul, you know, being released from that cage. And being able to be with her daughter in the woods, in these beautiful fields, with the trees and the plants. And there was more, you know, this lasted a good while. (laughs) Uh, And and the messages that were attached to that, but that has stuck with me over the past four or five months in in just a profound way that, like you said, do I have the right answer in saying, oh, that was for sure a past life or could have been a legacy burn? I don't know. But it was clearly something attached to me that was significant for some reason. And Mm. it was a beautiful experience to be able to witness. The healing power of witnessing is, is to me, a great mystery. And a beautiful, great mystery. I don't think we understand it hardly at all yet. But it's so, and I think it's really, really important. And it's something IFS highlights but you know, it it is a, it is a mystery. It's not something we understand. I think. Right, and I think as long as we are surrounding ourselves with or connecting ourselves with people that are open to this, then as we encounter these experiences, we can feel safe to then turn towards them. Yeah. And not not have to keep silent about them and pretend they didn't happen and didn't have an impact. That's right. I want to I want to mention some weird stuff. Okay. I like I like weird stuff, as you may have noticed. <laughs> First of all, there are many American indigenous peoples who believe in reincarnation. Many. It's not rare. And some, at least I know some uh, Sioux gentlemen, and he seems to think this is common among his people, he also believes their future lives that come back and talk to us. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that was that was uh, something new and fresh. But there's something really bizarre, the Iroquois Confederacy, you know, which is what we modeled the federal system after because they were all these tribes came together and that they had they formed a way to be peaceful without mushing all the tribes together. They all kept their they had this council and each person on the council they they all took the name of the first person who took that job but it was more than they just took the name they became that spirit 
so that the same spirits were always on that council. So I don't, do, do you call this possession? <laughs> do you call this past life? What do you call this? It's like yeah. totally unique. That's interesting. Yeah. And another one, just, I like the, I like these ones that are, this has only been observed once by a Westerner. It's in Tibet. But there was, there were all these rumors about great lamas could reincarnate instantly when they wanted to. And what they would do, and one, a Frenchman said he witnessed this. The lama had just died, I think like the night before, or very, very fresh. And they had him lying on this thing outdoors under a, a sheet-like thing, a big piece of cloth. And they took like a four-year-old boy and put him under the cloth with the lama. And then they were doing these chanting and all this stuff. And after a while, the boy let out a, a yell and there was a big movement under the thing. And then they, they took the cloth off and they brought the boy out and tested him saying, which of these, which of these three rosaries belong to the Lama? And he picked it out and they said that the, the Lama's spirit had gone into the boy. That's so interesting. So interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I that, that's the only case of that I've ever come across yeah. but it's like again just so fascinating and, and and again I feel like the more I have these conversations I'm just like there's like like we're saying this whole time it's like there's so much we don't know and yeah. that we can't explain yeah. I think these people who are talking about a theory of everything well oh come on gang we're so far away from that in the external world, what was it, 20 years ago, they discovered dark energy and dark matter. Mm -hmm. So basically, there's 96% of the universe we know nothing about. Oh, and, man. Oh, whoops, we missed 96%. But we almost <laughs> got it now. Trust us, we got it. <laughs> oh, no, you don't. And we even that 4% that's left over, we don't know much about either, really. Right. I think in the inner world, the world of subjectivity, we know even less, especially in our culture, because we've done our best to ignore it and pretend it doesn't matter. And to build these fortress-like things around a very, very small part of our consciousness and you know, to try and pretend the rest doesn't exist, which, to our great detriment. Right. It's been good for you know, manipulating material things, but it's almost destroyed us spiritually. That's right. We're missing so much, so much connection that like we were saying before, is already there. Yeah, it's like most most of the indigenous people, they talk about all my relations. They're talking about the grass and the birds and the mm -hmm. buffalo and, you know. And in anthropology, we used to talk about animism, this idea that everything is ensouled. And I think that's coming back, something like animism. And Martin Buber, you know, he... He said there basically there are two basic ways you can be in the world. You can have I-it relationships or you can have I-thou relationships. And he said you can have an I-thou relationship with a rock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just a, a different quality of relationship. And he sort of traced all the evil we do to having I-it relationships. And that if you're really having an I-thou relationship, you cannot perpetrate against whoever you're having that kind of relationship with. Well, because you I feel think, connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel connected. It doesn't feel separate. Yep. 
And yep. I think that's maybe part of a big thing of what's threatening to some people's, some of their parts, this idea of, well, wait a minute, if I feel, if I open this up to feeling connected, <laughs> then. Yeah, you might then, have to quit your job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Then I might have to make some big shifts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And how I function in my job or my, well, how, thing, how, thing how I see the world. Yeah. Yeah, this definitely involves big shifts from the standard Western worldview. One thing I do do, and I think this is really important and helpful, is when I'm working with people around this, I say, your inner world reality and your outer world reality are not like a freight train. They are not coupled together. You can make these big changes inside. You don't have to automatically make those others. That's a whole nother set of decisions let's just focus on what's what's real and true for you in your inner world right now because right. if people have these two tied together it makes it so hard to make any real changes and that i've found is a very helpful thing to do with people i agree i have found that to be very helpful as well even within myself but especially with people that i'm working with where parts of them are maybe fearful of oh, wait a minute if i make this shift within then how is this going to impact maybe my external shifting? And it's like, well, it doesn't have to at this point. If you don't, yeah. you know, you don't have yeah. to. Yep. Yep. Because otherwise it's just too much to, to shift at once. Absolutely. You know, I feel like there's other questions that I have in regards to past lives. And I feel like maybe the answers, well, I don't want to assume, but I guess <laughs> <laughs> I always, I'm like, there's a part that's like, well, what about those? You know, um, one of my questions was, you know, so how do we connect and bring awareness to our past lives? Let me let me say some stuff because there's so much stuff I want to talk about. Yeah. I think the past lives that need our attention will come knocking at our door. And we don't we don't need to go searching out for them. I want to talk about the spiritists and uh of Brazil. They they are master mediums and they are doing a great they are farther ahead than anyone on the planet, I believe, in marrying mediumistic past life work with modern psychiatry. There are over 50 psychiatric hospitals in Brazil that have spiritist healing teams as part of them. I could go on about that a lot, but let me just say, they believe that we reincarnate in soul groups. We don't reincarnate individually but a whole group of us will reincarnate. And somebody who was your father in a previous life could be your son in this life, or could be your boss at work, or could be your brother. All these roles shift. And we work out these dynamics in a group mm. over, over many, many, many generations. And not only are there us down here on the planet, there are these disembodied spirits up here who also are part of our soul group. So they have this very complex idea about reincarnation. And for them, working out our past life material often involves working out your issues with your children or your spouse or whatever. So it's yeah. not like some separate thing. That makes so much sense. And I'm gonna share a story. <laughs> <laughs> where I was meeting with a medium one time and she specializes in connecting with being able to see people's past lives and guides and things like that. And one of the things she mentioned to me was she saw a gentleman involved in one of my 
past life experiences where there was trauma and there was kind of a, the energy of the gentleman was he helped save me. Well, that past life of me and of this person I'm connected to. And she's like, I can see that his soul is connected to yours and that she's like, you all have encountered each other in multiple lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And she's like, and you're encountering him again now. Mm -hmm. And that was so interesting to me. And so what you're saying now makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. This, uh, this guy I'm reading, uh, a, an Agori, a left-hand tantric practitioner in India, he says, you never in your life can form a sexual connection with anyone you didn't have a connection with in a previous life. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes sense. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it, it does. It kind of makes sense. Because yeah. you think about of, just the draw that sometimes yeah. you feel towards someone. Yeah, it's like, whoa, that was powerful. Yeah, But I just, I try and... I tr I try to stay with William James's radical pragmatism. There's some things we can do here which are going to fairly reliably help remove the suffering of the human being who's sitting in front of me. All these other things are fascinating and you know you know you've seen my bibliography you know I study this a lot a lot but all that doesn't really matter so much. What matters is what can I do that's going to practically help this person in front of me suffer somewhat less yeah that's something i think we can reasonably expect to, to be able to do you know and and to learn how to do better and better whereas all this stuff like what are these things and what's the difference between this and not not for hundreds of years <laughs> right i <laughs> know and you know in regards to let's say the benefit of when we are able to bring a connection with, let's say, a past life soul connected to us, and we're able to be with it in the way that it really needs, witness what it needs to have witnessed. What would you say is the benefit that happens? It's just like UBs. A lot of times people have very large uh, relief very quickly, more, uh, more quickly than with traditional therapy, I would say. That's going to get me in trouble. Oh, well, I want to, I just want to say, you know, there, there've been a lot of people. Brian Weiss is a very famous uh, physician who does this kind of work and he uses pretty traditional um, hypnotherapy. But before him, there was a guy named Roger Wolger who did a lot of this work. He was a PhD psychologist and he didn't just use hypnotherapy or stuff. He used a lot of ritual, dance, psychodrama, and he, he called it a, a deep memory processing, and he related it to Jungian archetypes and archetypal work. And very often this past life stuff does sort of morph or blend into cultural or species-wide inheritances, like, like with the archetypes. And I think uh, Roger Wolger, I think his book came out in the early 80s, you know, <laughs> uh, I think he... I think he was really opening to the depths that this kind of stuff suggests. I think the thing, the number one thing I would like people to go away with is what all this suggests. We don't know hardly nothing. 
<laughs> Open your mind. If you were thinking that couldn't possibly be, well, get that thought out of your head. We don't know enough to be saying that yet. That's and right. a lot of the things, you know, we lock people up in mental institutions for are probably valid visionary uh, phenomena. And if we could hold these people differently, they would give our culture the kind of deep vision we, we, we really need now. Some of them, some of them, you know, some of them, it's, it's pathology, but we're throwing away a lot of great stuff. Well, again, I'm just very grateful that you're out there in the world and within the IFS community talking about all these things and bringing them to people's awareness. And like you said, lots of people right now are wanting to talk about these things because it's a part of our life. And yeah. as you do this inner work, you're going to come across all these things. Yep. That's, that's definitely true. And pretending it's not there is not, not a good solution. <laughs> right. It's not helping. <laughs> it's not yeah. helping. So yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bob, for having these conversations and coming yeah, on the and podcast. I could do it is because I'm so old. <laughs> I don't need a career. I don't need the approval of the Institute or anybody. You know, it's fine with me if people write me off. I can just, you know, being old, you can say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you crack me up. And yeah, and I am, again, I'm just, I'm so curious and I love being able to have people on here to be able to just talk about any of these things that we find so interesting and play a big part of our life. So again, I'm grateful for you and your curiosity and your passion about this stuff. Thank you. And I keep discovering new stuff. Yeah. And keep sharing it. A couple things I want to say, because I know we're about out of time here. COVID was wonderful for me because it made psychotherapy a totally non-local thing. Many or most of my clients come from overseas now. I've had just the most fascinating, fascinating people to me. And some of it is such a relief. This woman in Mexico said to me, I don't know why you Yankees are so uptight about spirits. Down here, they're as common as tacos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And And is there anything that you want to share with the listeners that you will be offering. I know you had mentioned a past life class mm-hmm. that you'll be teaching on February 16th. Yep. Yep. Through Derek Scott. And I think, um, I think that should be up on my website, uh, an announcement of it. Okay. Uh, Cause you said that would be from 11 AM to 2 PM PST. Mm-hmm. And people can go to your website, robertfalkner.us and find that link. And I'll put all of that in the show notes too. Well, I got a new book coming out, uh, a book of quotations and sayings that link psychological healing and spirituality, especially around trauma. And the title of that book will be when you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah, that's so great. And you said that will be coming out this April. Hopefully. Yeah. That's always good but it should be. And then I will have another book on IFS and Swedenborg, Emanuel Swedenborg, that should be out by the end of the year or early next year. That's in the hands of the editors. So it's out of my control. Wonderful. Well, that's so exciting. I love your work and just your, again, your curiosity, your sharing of information. I'm so grateful for it. 
So Okay, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you all so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating and leave a review. You can also follow me on Instagram at Natalie Deering and sign up for my newsletter on my website, ndwellnessservices.com to receive updates about podcast episodes, workshops, and more.